Well, I hope you had the opportunity to be here last Sunday for Back to School Sunday. What an awesome Sunday uh, we had here uh, in this room as we celebrated uh, and honored our teachers. We prayed over our teachers and our students. Uh, we had some food trucks after service. And then we, uh, we split out to 15 different locations last Sunday evening, and uh, more than 260 people came together to pray over those schools. And uh, we're just continuing to lift up uh, our teachers and our students as, uh, as they continue this new school year. Uh, last week, we handed out these prayer tags. Uh, we had an opportunity to, you had an opportunity to uh, pick one of those up. If you didn't get a chance to do that, uh, you'll have that opportunity today. We're going to make those available for you, and uh, you'll hear instructions about that a little bit later. If you have your Bibles today, the book of Job in the Old Testament is where we're going to be. There's a, uh, a verse in Scripture that uh, I've seen crocheted on nursing home walls. I've seen it posted on church signs. I have uh, seen it in church bulletins. It's a verse of Scripture from the Gospel of John, John 10, 10, and every time I see it, it looks the same. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Now, these are the words of Jesus to his followers. He's saying, I have come to give you this abundant life. But every time I see that verse, it always begins the same way, dot, 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 and then the verse. Well, it's a beautiful verse, and I'm sure it's inspiring and welcoming to people who see it as they walk into a worship service. It's the kind of verse that encourages you, it fills you with hope, but those dots, they represent that part of the verse that's been left out. Usually that's done because it's not necessary to understanding the meaning of a scripture, but if you look at that verse, John 10, 10, in your Bible, you'll find that those dots represent a pretty significant teaching. Because before Jesus said, I have come that they may have life, do you know what he said? The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Yeah, I can see why they leave that part off. I can see why that doesn't make it on the front of the bulletin. But to leave that part off doesn't give you the complete teaching. It's like a job description that says, you'll work 80 hours a week as a dog food taster and we'll pay you $100,000 a year. But in the ad, all they put in is taste tester, $100,000 a year. Well, it sounds good, but there's a whole other side to it. And it is good news that Jesus has come to give us life, an abundant life. But the reality is that life is opposed. And every day we are engaged in a spiritual battle where we have an enemy. There is a thief, the Bible says, who comes to steal and kill and destroy. And these are the intentions of someone you've come to know as Satan or the devil. When the Bible talks about Satan, it doesn't tell us a great amount of where he came from. In fact, you kind of have to put bits and pieces of Scripture together to arrive at an explanation of how Satan came to be. Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9 gives us this insight. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. There's some disagreement among Bible scholars as to the timing of this event. 
But evidently, Satan was this archangel who became prideful, and he led this rebellion against God and his other angels. He fought against God. That never tends to work out very well. And he was cast down with all of his followers. And now, the Bible says, we face this spiritual adversary, and he is determined to destroy the life God wants you to live. He's very clever in his attacks. He's called in Scripture not only the devil or the adversary, but also Beelzebub, the prince of darkness, the accuser, the dragon. Jesus labeled him here a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The Apostle Paul says, be obedient in everything in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Uh, Peter says in 1 Peter 5.8, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And while this idea of a roaring lion seeking to devour us is not something we like to think about, it's not a sign that your, your grandma would put on her wall, it is a reality, and it should not be dismissed. And so let's try to answer some questions about Satan and learn a little bit more about him. C.S. Lewis wrote this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both heirs and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. And I want to be cautious as we talk about the devil. I don't want to give Satan too much attention. There's a danger when we put the spotlight too much in his direction because evil and darkness can, if we're not careful, become this unhealthy attraction or fascination. And Satan would like for us to think of him as God's counterpart, his evil equal, and they are not equal. And if we're not careful, we give him too much power, and it causes us to be afraid of him, or question our position as God's children, or to doubt God's authority. But I'm guessing most of us have not slipped into what Lewis calls the excessive interest category when it comes to Satan. Most of us have probably avoided thinking very much about this adversary we have. The truth is, most of us are so caught up in the world we see, the world that surrounds us, that we're naive to the supernatural forces at work behind the scenes. I read a Barna poll that said 60% of Americans believe that Satan is not an actual living being, but rather merely a symbol of evil. While most people believe in the existence of a real God, many people question the existence of a real devil. And for many people, Satan is more a logo for sin than an actual being. And if you're not going to make the mistake of overestimating his power and his authority, then Satan would probably just have you live unaware. He would probably prefer you just not think of him at all. I'm not sure if you ever saw the movie The Matrix, but there's a scene where Morpheus meets with Neo, and he's trying to convince him that the world Neo lives in isn't real. But there's this whole other real world out there. And Morpheus says this, let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you felt your entire life. 
that there's something wrong with the world. Do you know what it is? It's all around us, even now in this very room. You can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work or go to church or pay your taxes. And he's describing the sense that Neo has that what he sees as reality isn't all there is, but there's something else out there. And then you might remember that Morpheus takes out two pills, a blue pill and a red pill. And he explains, you can take the blue pill and the story ends, and you can believe whatever you're told to believe, or you can take the red pill and I will show you the truth, nothing more. And Neo takes the red pill and he discovers this real world. But it's much more dangerous and it's not nearly as comfortable as the world he was used to. And I think there are a lot of people who would just prefer to take the blue pill. When it comes to the spiritual war taking place in our world, they would just assume to be in blissful ignorance than to have their eyes open to what is real. And so while many people doubt the existence of a literal devil, they think of him more of a mythical character with a red suit and horns and a pitchfork and a tail. You know, someone from the cartoons. Maybe as the personification of evil rather than an actual being. But the Bible teaches us that he is an actual being and he is our adversary. And so in the next few minutes, I want to give us a glimpse of the role he is trying to play in our lives. His evil intentions to take us away from the life that God intends us to live. I read this week that when someone is injured, maybe in an accident, a paramedic will come to them and immediately try to evaluate their level or degree of consciousness. And the highest level of consciousness is known as alert and oriented times four. And it describes almost everyone in an everyday situation. When you're alert and oriented times four, then you know who you are, you know where you're at, you know what time it is, you know what just happened. But if someone suffers a blow to the head, the first thing they lose is the memory of recent events. And they're called at that point alert and oriented times three. The last thing they lose, though, is their identity. And a person who has lost all levels of consciousness, they don't know who they are or where they're at or what time it is, they are called alert and oriented times zero. And if you're alert and oriented times zero, then all you're aware of is that you exist, but nothing more than your own immediate world. And I think there are some alert and oriented spiritual levels. And maybe we can increase our awareness. In the next few minutes, we're going to spend some time in the book of Job. And Job chapters 1 and 2 talk more about Satan than any other passage in the Bible. When we first meet Job here, I'm not sure how aware he is of Satan's presence. We read that he's living what most of us would call a very good life, the kind of life that seems fitting for someone who loves God and is trying to honor him. Listen to what Job says in Job 1, verses 2 and 3. Job, he had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. Job was doing very well. 
If they had a TV show back then, it probably would have been called The Fabulous Life of Job. He was a very wealthy person, and everything in his life was going pretty good. His lifestyle was carefree. But don't make the mistake, because Satan was still at work in his life. Wealth and health can be some of his most potent weapons. And the first intention of Satan as a thief in your life is to try to distract me with what is temporary. You see, if he can get our focus on what is momentary, then we won't be thinking about things that are eternal. And if all my needs are taken care of and I have everything that I want, then I'm not going to be dependent on God. In his book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis imagines one demon named Screwtape who's mentoring another demon named Wormwood on how to turn the man he's been assigned to away from God. And so it's written in the form of these letters, written back and forth between these two demons. And the very first letter that Screwtape writes to Wormwood is about distracting the man that he's been assigned to. Listen to what Screwtape writes to Wormwood. I once had a patient, a sound atheist, who sat reading something that was going to change his direction. The enemy was at his elbow in a moment. Before I knew where I was, I saw my 20 years' work beginning to totter. I struck instantly at the part of the man which I had best under my control and suggested that it was time he had some lunch. And he goes on to advise Wormwood that if this man he's been assigned to should enter a church, that he should distract him with a boot that squeaks or the double chin or the odd clothes of the person sitting next to him. And Satan intends to distract us. He wants to keep our focus off of things that really matter. And he's been pretty effective, I think, in doing that for many people. I mean, how easy is it for us to spend our days thinking about the paperwork that needs to get done? Or getting dinner on the table? Or finishing the homework? Or not missing the latest episode of your favorite show? And Satan knows, if I can just get them distracted, I can steal this abundant life that Jesus wants them to live. And I'm sure that most of us have experienced this. Does it ever happen to you where you're determined to pray, to have this conversation with God, and and you just want to string together a few minutes of prayer with God, and so you bow your head to pray, and you say, God, thank you so much for this beautiful day, for this beautiful weather that we've had. God, thank you for, for the big trees and, and thank you for the, the, the leaves of the trees that are falling to the ground. And, and I really need to go out and rake the leaves. All my other neighbors have raked up their leaves, and if I don't do it now, I'm not sure when I'm going to get around to it. And I'm the only house in the neighborhood that doesn't have their leaves raked. And before you know it, you're outside raking your leaves, wondering how in the world did I get out here when you were just praying a few minutes ago? Or do you do this, you're, you're driving in the car and the radio's turned down so you can barely hear it, and you start talking to God about your day. You know, you're wanting to have this significant spiritual moment. But then your favorite song comes on the radio, and without even thinking about it, you turn up the radio, and instead of praying, you're singing at the top of your lungs, Sweet Home Alabama. And you don't know how it happened, but, but it happened. Or maybe you're in your room and you're trying to read your Bible. But then you hear something come from the TV in the living room, and you think, well, I can read this later. And so you go in there. Or maybe it's in a room like this. You come to church, and as you receive communion, you open up the bread and the juice, and 
you think to yourself, man, that bread is really tiny, and I'm pretty hungry, and what are we going to have for lunch today? And we get so distracted with the temporary, things that are insignificant. John Piper, in his book, A Hunger for God, writes this. The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, his most deadly weapons are not the poison of evil, but the simple pleasures of earth. Jesus said some people hear the word of God and a desire for God is awakened in their hearts. But then as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life. In another place, he said, the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. The pleasures of this life and the desires for other things, these are not evil in themselves. They are not vices. These are gifts of God. They are your basic meat and potatoes and coffee and gardening and reading and decorating and traveling and investing and TV watching and internet surfing and shopping and exercising and collecting and talking. And all of them can become deadly distractions. And so Satan may not try to convince you that he is this evil real being trying to destroy your life and rob you of the life you want. He may just try to do his best to distract you with things that are temporary, things that are unimportant. Well, he couldn't distract Job. Job was different, and Job did not let his worldly success distract him from God. Instead, we read in verse 1 that Job was blameless and pure, that he feared God and shunned evil, and that every day he offered these sacrifices and and prayers on behalf of his children. And in Job 1.8, we get to listen to this conversation between God and Satan, and they're discussing Job. It says, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hand so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then. Everything he has is in your power. But on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Well, in these next few chapters, another intention of Satan is revealed. If he can't distract us with the temporary, then he will intend to destroy me with pain and suffering. The story of Job reveals some of the ways Satan intends to destroy us, to get us to curse God and walk away from him. The first thing we see is that Satan will often use nature. Because he kills Job's children, but if you look at how he does it in verse 9, it says, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house, it collapsed on them and they are dead. Satan seemed to have power over nature that God allowed him to have. 1 John 1.9 tells us that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Now, 
I want to be careful not to infer that Satan has been given complete control over everything and that every natural disaster, the devil's behind. You know, that Satan is behind every sneeze and, and every bad thing that happens in nature. But on the other hand, we shouldn't be naive to the way he works because you never hear Satan being blamed much for, right, for, for much, right? Like, if a hurricane happens, some people might blame God or wonder why God let this happen. Some people would say that, that sin caused it to happen, but, but you never hear anyone ask, why did the devil do this? He's never blamed for these things. And Satan continues to use suffering, just like he did with Job, to test the sincerity of our faith. Now, I can't fully explain why, but God allows him in certain times and people and places to do this. In Revelation, Jesus spoke to the people of Smyrna, and he said, Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. It's interesting to note that even in the book of Job, the devil had to ask permission from God to have this power. I don't know why God granted it. I don't know why he would subject his servant to such an attack. Job lost not only his family, but he lost his fortune. And just like that, he went from being wealthy to having nothing. And Satan thought, let's see if Job stays faithful, even when we take everything away from him. And even though Job doesn't know why God allowed it to happen, he continued to remain faithful. Well, here's another tool that Satan uses. It's physical disease and sickness. Job 2, verses 7 and 8 says, So Satan afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. Job's sickness and disease begins to destroy him physically, but it also destroys his wife. And sometimes Satan will not just attack us physically to destroy us, but will attack someone we love to try to destroy us. Paul oftentimes prayed for his thorn in the flesh, this physical problem he had to be removed. We don't know what it is, but he called it a messenger from Satan. And Satan will use everything he has at his disposal, everything God allows him to have to try to destroy us. Now, before we go much further in talking about Satan, I want to be sure that we're not attributing to Satan the same power that God has, because the two aren't even on the same page. While we read that Satan has power, God is all-powerful. God is omnipotent, and Satan's power is limited. And the only power Satan has is the power that God allows him to have. We also read, read that God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. But Satan can only be in one place at a time. In Scripture, we read that an angel would have to travel from one location to another. So it's possible that Satan has never been in your presence. He may not even know who you are. The other thing is Satan is not all-knowing. 
God is omniscient. God knows everything. But Satan's knowledge is limited. He's a created being. He doesn't know everything that happens. He can't read your thoughts. He doesn't know what's going to happen in the future. And you can just know that if God and Satan are compared to one another, God is much more powerful, and with the word of his mouth, one day Satan will be destroyed. Well, Satan uses nature and sickness, and when he tries to destroy us, he will also use wicked people. In Job 1.17, a messenger comes to Job and says, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament comes from the book of 2 Kings. And the king of Aram, which was an enemy of Israel, he sent out a great army to surround one of the cities where he knew Elisha was. And Elisha and his servant were completely surrounded by this great army. And Elisha's servant says to Elisha, Alas, master, what shall we do? They're surrounded. They, they don't have any hope. It's two of them against this entire army. And Elisha responds with an incredible statement. He says, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. But Elisha's servant looks around and there's no one with them. All they can see are these soldiers from Aram's army. And Elisha's servant must have wondered, where are those who are with us? Well, where are they hiding? It seems like the two of them were all by themselves. And then Elisha prays this prayer. He says, God, open his eyes so that he may see. And we're told that the servant opened his eyes, and he looked, and all the hillsides surrounding them were these horses and chariots of fire. You know, I've read this story a few times, and most recently I read it. Something caught my attention that I never noticed before. It's in the wording. Because Elisha said to his servant, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. The wording is just a little bit unusual because if Elisha was talking about just the king of Aram and his army, wouldn't he have just said, those who are with us are greater than them? But that's not what he says. He says, those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. And it seems clear that just as Elisha and his servant were being protected by this large host of angels from heaven, the armies of Aram were being escorted and accompanied by evil forces also. There was a real enemy. And you will continually encounter people who Satan will use to try to rob you of the life that God wants you to have. Uh, one other intention of Satan if he can't distract me with the temporary or destroy me with suffering, then he's going to do his best to discourage me with accusations. In fact, one of the names given to him in Scripture is the accuser, where he points his finger at us and he accuses us. A while back, I got on an airplane and I had a window seat. And it's a little nerve-wracking when you have the window seat because you never know who's going to sit down next to you. And, you know, sometimes you might sit next to a person and they want to talk the whole time and maybe you want to get some rest and it shouldn't really be that big of a deal, but at some point during the flight, you wonder how much of the armrest you're going to get compared to how much of the armrest that they're going to get. And anyways, I wish you could have seen this lady who sat down next to me. 
she was on her way to enjoy some gambling in Las Vegas, but she was just this very rough-looking person, okay? That's the nicest way that I know how to say it. She was wearing this trucker's hat that had an extremely vulgar message on it, expressing how she wanted to show her appreciation to all Vietnam veterans. And I appreciate someone who's patriotic, but it was just very inappropriate. And it was obvious that her hair hadn't been washed in quite some time. And as she sat next to me, I just caught this huge whiff of body odor. And I looked out the window, and I silently thanked God that I was too young to have served in Vietnam. And after we sat there for a few moments, she turned to me with this look of disgust, and she said, did you take a shower this morning? And she's talking to me with like this accusatory voice, and I confessed, yes. And then she asked, are you wearing cologne? Yes, I am. And she goes, well, that's just great. Of all the people that I had to sit next to. And she let out this this very frustrating sigh. She looked at me and she said, I am horribly allergic to cologne, shampoo, soap, or perfume of any kind. And I was just shocked. (laughs) And she she let out this terrible noise of frustration and, and she started hacking a little bit. And I didn't know what to say to her. I... It was ridiculous that I did this, but I just said to her, I'm really sorry. I apologized. I couldn't believe that I was apologizing to her for showering and wearing cologne. Here was this woman with a a trucker's hat that had body odor and a beard that was on its way to rivaling John the Baptist. And there's, there's something about when we're constantly accused whether it has basis or not, whether it's true or not, that it starts to become something we believe about ourselves. And Satan all day long will accuse us. And in the book of Job, he accuses Job through his friends, through his wife. In Job 2.9, his wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. And then for several chapters, Job's friends try to console him. But after he continues to endure these hardships, they start trying to convince him that all this pain and all this suffering must be from God because he has somehow offended God. Job's friends try to convince him that God is punishing him for this sin in his life, that that God somehow has it out for him. And Satan, as the accuser, is trying to do the same thing to you and me. And his accusations are meant to rob us of the abundant life that God wants us to live. So he accuses us. He says, God's not listening to your prayers, not after what you've done. How many times do you think that you can ask for forgiveness from this? This is one time too many. You can't share your faith with that person, not with a past like yours. And he is constantly accusing us. A revelation also teaches that Satan accuses us before God that he points the finger at us in God's presence. But just as we have an accuser, the Bible also tells us that we have an advocate. We have someone who speaks to God on our behalf, and that is Jesus Christ. And for every time that Satan accuses us and points out the sin in our life, our advocate advocate says, I've paid for that one. I've taken care of that one. And I want to be careful not to end our time together discussing Satan 
by focusing on the thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but instead on focusing on the one who has come to give us life and life to the full. Because Satan may try to distract me with the temporary, but it is the intention of Jesus to focus me on what is eternal. And Satan may try to destroy me with suffering, but it is the intention of Jesus to strengthen me through suffering. And Satan may intend to discourage me with accusations, but it is the intention of Jesus to encourage me with his grace in my life. And the Bible tells us that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the advocate that we have in Jesus Christ. That we have a Savior who is a perfect mediator, who covers every one of our sins. And so when Satan tries to distract us, when he tries to destroy us, when he tries to discourage us, we know that he who is in us, the Spirit of God who takes up resident within us, is greater than any accusations that the evil one can throw at us. And so, God, I pray that we would understand that Satan is real, that he does have power, but his power is no match for you. And God, help us to live with the the confidence knowing that one day, because you reign and you rule, one day Satan will be defeated and destroyed forever. God, we praise you for that. God, I pray if there is anybody in here who has been attacked by Satan, by evil, especially, God, if there's somebody in here who does not have Jesus as the Savior of their life, God, I pray that they would call out to you and know that they too can have an advocate, that they can have their sins covered, that they can belong to you. May you strengthen all of us in our faith, knowing that you are a Savior who is the ruler of the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.